You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. Pretty dark. <laughs> it's the kind of thing if somebody was going to get it for you, they would have had to get it for you in the last few weeks. Oh. And it's possible that someone already has. In the last few weeks. But it's also possible somebody could just give it to you like today, mere hours before I give it to you. Whoa. And I will be just bummed. So it's, it's something that didn't exist prior to the last few weeks? It's hard to say. This is a riddle. This is a mystery. Like I said, I can't give you too many hints. Listener, you'll be hearing this so many days <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. removed. But it's a good enough you... place to start. It's Kaylin's birthday. What day is today? It's your birthday. It's my birthday. In Full House, it was Mother's Day, but oh, that's not today. Not as good. I'm one of those millennials that, you know, now dreads birthdays a little bit the older that i get now you're a millennial that dreads your birthday but i'm also I think a leo that's... so i'm like hey it is my birthday but uh <laughs> also i hate that it's my birthday and i just want you to know both of those things <laughs> i think it's i think we've been dreading our birthdays but yeah you and i both since we were yeah. young at least I i've did. cried on my birthday more than i haven't i think <laughs> more often than it's I a have. weird thing we have with birthdays i don't know if i've if i've cried just aging in general, both you and I. I just don't like it. Mm-mm. I don't like my birthday. I like your birthday. I like giving you gifts. I like your birthday. Your birthday is well, a blast. Well, I don't mind your thanks. birthday at all. Yeah, I don't mind you getting older. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's going to be five days after Kaylin's birthday when you guys hear this. I mean, maybe more than that. Yeah. But if you haven't yet, wish her happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Happy birth week. Happy birth thanks month. Thanks in advance and and preemptively. Uh, that's very nice of, of you all. <laughs> It's been a, a very, like, magical 30th year, so I'm hoping that 31 can uh, top it. 31 seems unlucky, and that's going to make it more lucky for no, me. No, yeah, yeah. Wood, you know? Yeah. That's why I had to go be in Salem uh, in my 31st year on October 31st on October last 31st. year. Mm-hmm. I had to do it for myself, so like I told you, we're going to have to do something like that for you. I know. I, we're thinking we've we've talked about a ghost tour for years. New Orleans, yeah, we're gonna have to. do If that. you guys have done fun ghost tours in New Orleans, um, send us your recommendations. Because there's a bunch. Yeah, there are a lot of options, and I don't want to pick the wrong one, you know, because yeah. like we're close enough that it could be a day trip, but like, yeah, yeah, you know, like if you go, you want it to feel right, you know. Yeah. If it's a little bit hokey, that's part of the fun, you know. You want to do a really solid ghost tour, and then you want to top it off by getting a drink at the dungeon mm-hmm. and then the dungeon, whatever yes. else new orleans has to offer but if you're us you probably just drive back that night because we can't be away from our cats no it's just not as fun <laughs> well speaking of getting older we're going to talk a whole lot about existentialist thought and mortality we wouldn't be that's pretty dark series. if not yeah my name's kaylin yeah my name is christian if you didn't know and you've heard all about our birthdays and our existential dread that's pretty dark <laughs> first things first Before we jump in. I'm the realist. I have some synchronicities to address. Okay. The other week, we recorded our Demon in the Mattress episode. We did. Which is a total spoof of The Exorcist. Yes. Uh, And we talked all about that movie. Mm -hmm. The next day, I see a news article about a local priest going crazy, abandoning his parish, and leaving the country with a girl he fell in love with while she was still underage. And although he was just grooming her, at first there was a lot of talk of demonology and exorcisms. Mm-hmm. Lots of speculation. Because he had said he was he was leaving to perform exorcisms. It right. wasn't clear if he was performing an exorcism on this girl that he stole away to Europe or mm-hmm. 
Um, that was not immediately clear, but what was clear is that he left with a underage or very recently 18, which isn't any better. Yeah. They had their relationship began before yeah. she was 18. That's a fact. But the synchronicities. We record about the exorcist. I read this about this guy who thinks he's an exorcist. Right. And then the same day, I see a trailer for the new Exorcist movie coming out this year. No way. And then a few weeks later, just a few days ago, William Friedkin dies. Oh, yes. He's the director of The Exorcist. And I saw that all over the place. Yeah. All over everything. Just everywhere on social media. It's insane how all this just happened at the same time. A lot of exorcist energy. A lot of exorcist energy. What just demons in time. are you exercising from your life, listener? <laughs> yeah, but just in time for, you know, spooky season coming up. Yeah. And that's not the last synchronicity with the exorcist that we're going to be discussing today. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. I really didn't think we'd spend this much time, you know, on The Exorcist as a concept. Very much like I didn't think the French Revolution would play into this podcast as much as it has. So I guess. You never know what you're going to get into when you come to That's Pretty Dark. <laughs> and neither do we. Rarely. Very is, rarely. You know, half the fun. We're along for the ride just as much as you are. Today, guys, we're talking about an all but forgotten cult classic from the Disney crypt, The Watcher in the Woods. It is so strange that it's technically a Disney film. Isn't it though? Honestly, everything these days is technically a Disney film with as much they own so many things. Yeah, they've they've swallowed up half of the entertainment industry or more. So if last year's theme was Celtic mythology and British folklore, this year is just good old fashioned American horror cinema. And this movie is a nice blend of both. And as I promised, it's going to be a really dope transition from all of our summer, you know, summer vibes to autumn. Oh, yeah. We, autumn. You promised that in an earlier episode. Yeah. You were like, we're going we're gonna to transition the vibes. And I feel like, yeah, this is when we begin that shift over into the spookiness of the autumn time. Absolutely. The end of August. You and I have been looking at that a lot lately. Like a lot of poets, a lot of people write about the end of August they and really how that do. feels in the air. And I've always felt that way, but it's also like, obviously it's also my birthday. So it's like, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's a weird beginning for me. It is a nice magical time. It's very interesting. And it mm-hmm. was always, you know, the beginning of school. It's a new school year, all of that, at least in, you know, in America where we live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely carries a lot of that energy. It's perfect too because this movie is set during the summer because the book that it's based on was set in July and August. Mm. So it all has this like end of summer feel that like yeah. that liminal transition marker in time. Moving into a new home, beginning mm-hmm. a new year in this place. Yeah. Because like also when you're a kid, you don't necessarily think of the new year as the the turnover to a new time. I always thought as the end of summer to the new school year. The school year. The yeah. The school year was my the marker. The school year definitely is a marker in my memory for sure. Um, like the idea of May and like the school year ending mm-hmm. and the yearbook signing and all that stuff. Even though I haven't been in school in <laughs> a really long time, <laughs> 10 plus years. Longer than we were in school. Right? We've been out of school longer than we were. Oh, it's sickening. Yeah, it is. But I feel like that left like a stamp on my perception of time, mm-hmm. even as an adult. And that's, you know, we're conditioned to love summertime. And, you know, like I said, in, in our hemisphere, <laughs> we're <laughs> yeah, conditioned to love the summer break and all that stuff. And so that carries with you into adulthood, even though in the summertime for me now, I'm just going to my office and it's hot outside. Right. I do still feel that cycle of of time because of our years in school. For this sure. is why we have to supplement that nostalgia with like uh, freeze pops and yeah. other summer vibes and like exactly. discussing and summer content on our podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The Watcher in the Woods is a supernatural horror film from the 1980s, produced by Walt Disney Productions and distributed by Buena Vista Distribution, which is now Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures. There you go. And despite later spooky ventures, such as two adaptations of The Haunted Mansion and the incredible made-for-TV classic Tower of Terror, oh, yeah. Watcher remains the only Disney film to be marketed as a horror film. Yes. The trailer itself for this film says, mm -hmm. even though you know it has all the Disney logos and everything, <laughs> it says this is not this a is fairy not tale. A like fairy very tale. foreboding. The Watcher in the Woods from Walt Disney Productions. It is not a fairy tale. I took screen grabs. I looked up the trailer. Black screen, white letters. It just reads, as proud as we are of the Watcher in the Woods. Walt Disney Productions strongly recommends that parents pre-screen the picture for pre-teens. It is not for small children! Exclamation point. Dang. It also says, Walt Disney Productions ushers in a new decade of motion picture entertainment with the following invitation to spend 90 minutes on the edge of your seat. They were they were leaning into that thriller mm -hmm. mindset and they wanted people to take it as such. Like that was what was trending in the late 70s going into the 80s. Oh, yeah. So they were just trying to be on trend. But then they're like, well, we have this whole reputation like that we have to uphold as well. Even though, you know, like we've learned half of the stuff they were making still wasn't very suitable for small children. <laughs> no. But they really yeah. they leaned into that disclaimer this go around and i agree i when i saw the trailer i was like this is i i don't they don't do stuff like this anymore mm -mm. No. they never i don't feel like they ever did again no either. they and were like people that watch it will watch it people that don't won't you know like they just adopted a much more laissez-faire like mm -hmm. attitude later and there's a lot of lore and history to do with this film so there are good reasons for all of these things that you're saying uh, good reason for why they really leaned in and also why it never happened again. Man. But we're going to get into please, all that yeah, with the series. Please tell and us. It is a series, part one and part two. This is just part one. I'm very, very intrigued by this film. And as you should be as well, listener, go look up the trailer for real. At least one person recommended this to us. If there were multiple and your name isn't Anna, <laughs> um, <laughs> let me know that you did. But Anna for sure said, cover the Watcher in the Woods. Nice. I'm sure we'll get to this, but I didn't watch this as a kid. Like this one did no, not, and, and probably because of all that heavy marketing to the contrary, oh, I just never this heard one did of it. not I mean, enter my my childhood, you know, library. It but, was forgotten for quite a while. Yeah, I think it really was. We're just bringing it back to light. Thanks, Anna. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I gave it a shot. It was like midnight one night. I wasn't tired, so I just poured myself another healthy whiskey <laughs> and. Uh, kicked back to this. Uh, this is on YouTube. It's really grainy and hard to watch. And you were glad for the tall whiskey. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it really, it set the stage. No lights. It was very spooky. So I say, give yourself, give yourself your strangest movie watching atmosphere experience that you do for yourself. I support that. And just really like live it up. That's what I did. Death it up a little bit. De death it up. Something happened in these woods. Something that has never been explained. And it's happening again. Now, American slasher cinematography meets British horror atmosphere and visuals, all in an effort to capture the ominous suspense of a supernatural mystery to engage teenagers while remaining family-friendly enough for Disney to put their name on it, mm -hmm. resulting in what essentially amounts to an incredibly expensive feature-length episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> they, it, they couldn't... 
I felt like they wanted it to be so many things, but they were they were afraid to commit fully to any one of those things. Uh huh. A hundred percent. So it just became. You're nailing it. Uh, I have. <laughs> I wrote down a quote from that Vulture article that I was talking about. It's one of my sources too. This so-called children's film selects a variety <laughs> of phobias and stitches them into a patchwork of shimmering terrorscapes and half-baked ideas about secret societies, the occult, and of course, dirt bike racing in rural England. In other words, it's, it's perfect. perfect. That's so funny. That was the exact, that was the next note I had was to read that quote. <laughs> I love when like I'm writing a script. I'm on brand. That I'm trying to anticipate what you're going to react to and what you're going to say. And that just proves that I, I know yeah. you so well. You figured it out. You've cracked the code, the Kalen code. Because yes, that <laughs> quote, I I really appreciated it. because It's, it's a beautifully it, written a article. A patchwork of shimmering terrorscapes. Like what's better than those words together? <laughs> it's a beautiful article and it's honestly very funny. It is, yeah, yeah. I'm going to quote a few things from that. And it was nice. written by uh, Rockish Sutyal. And we're glad, you know, it's not just us and Anna that remember this movie. <laughs> right. So the IMDb summary. When a family moves to a country home, the young girls experience strange happenings that have a link to an occult event years past. And that's pretty bare. So mm-hmm. I wrote one of my own. Okay. And I wrote it like four different ways. And this is the we one that Christian I- Christian special <laughs> this, this time. Christian special from a special Christian. <laughs> when an American family moves into an enormous house in the English countryside, one of the daughters, Jan- becomes convinced that there's someone, or something, in the woods, watching their house. After finding herself haunted by the apparition of a blonde, blindfolded, sometimes screaming girl in a white dress, Mm -hmm. Jan learns that there was a girl named Karen who went missing in those woods many years ago. Is Karen's ghost begging for help, or trying to warn Jan that soon history will repeat itself? Maybe both. Maybe neither. Hmm. Maybe nobody making this movie really has any idea what they're going to (laughs) do. To be confused, watch The Watcher in the Woods. Nice. This is not a fairy tale. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. That's one of the many things it's not. (laughs) Another article, Sight and Sound, called this movie a, quoting, curio an oddball artifact from the period in Disney's history when the studio was making a bid for relevance in the post-Star Wars landscape of mainstream cinema. Hmm. Now, this here is a sticking point. There were other live-action Disney films from this era that absolutely were responses to Star Wars. Sure. Such as The Black Hole and even Tron. Tron. That's what I was thinking of. But Watcher was meant to be something different altogether. There's a very good reason why this is Disney's only horror film. And it's also why you won't find it on Disney+. Plus. (laughs) If Brave Little Toaster is Disney's bastard child they claim no ownership of, then Watcher is Disney's disturbed child that they quietly sent away to a house for the broken heads, hoping to just move on with their lives. Yikes. If they could, Disney would bury all evidence they ever had anything to do with this movie. It feels very much like they tried. And perhaps they thought they had buried it, never anticipating that one day an army of darklings would be standing by, (laughs) shovels in hand, ready to dig up some pretty dark nostalgia. Nice. Unlike Brave Little Toaster, however, Disney was directly responsible for making this movie. Most sources online will say that if you know anything about the making of The Watcher in the Woods, It's that there were multiple endings written, filmed, 
printed and shown to the public on different occasions. Yes. And therefore, there is no true ending. Mm-hmm. Because there were multiple, there is none. It's a surprisingly small club of films that multiple endings have been shown to the public. Unintentionally. In multiple venues. Not just not just the like extended director's cut or something on the DVD. Like yeah. true different endings of the film. And not even like Clue, that movie showed on purpose different endings in different parts of the country. Right. So that mm-hmm. the reveal of who the, the murderer spoiler, is right. was different depending on where you were. No, that's that shows intentionality. Yeah, and that's smart. Forethought. This one, it was a, oh shit, let's fix this. <laughs> For reasons I'll get to when we discuss the Watcher novel, more so in part two, there already was no predetermined conclusion for the film to end on. But so much of the original story was altered during the screenwriting process and the production itself that any hope of a natural, clear conclusion was lost. Mm -hmm. Many blame this on one Disney executive in particular, Ron Miller, Mm -hmm. who was said to have meddled in the production so often Uh that before it was over, many of the plot's devices and details were no longer relevant or essential to the intended conclusion. Whoops. Whoops. I mean, I get like, it's it's one of those things where you're like trying to help it probably, you know, Tr- you're, you're trying to help. Mm, I don't what know. What you end up doing. <laughs> that might be too much credit for old Ron Miller. Mm. We'll see. It's I mean, just maybe, hope. Maybe. There's a lot of lore and there's a lot of speculation and rumors. So I don't know yes, what actually there, happened. Okay. Believe it or not, <laughs> I wasn't there back in 79. No way. Maybe I should do some like uh, past life regression. And see yeah, if I was there. maybe you were there. Maybe you were Ron. God, I hope not. <laughs> so you may be asking yourself, if the film was so much trouble to make, and now Disney pretends it doesn't exist, then why was it made in the first place? I was asking myself that. I thought you might be. It is your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get into all the facts of why and how this movie was made here in a second. But first, I hope you'll all indulge me in a little waxing poetic about what I believe to be the spirit or mentality of Disney at this time period. Oh, of course. I only have one quote from Disney personnel to back any of this up, but these are the dots that I've connected thus far in researching this episode, uh, but also from having been part of this podcast for coming up on two years now. I'm I'm down. Certainly not going to tell you no. Well, play, I mean, you could. You could veto this because it is your birthday, so... <laughs> It's I don't your, think that it, veto power carries it's over your party that far. And you can veto if you want to. You can be, <laughs> be the Ron Miller of your own life and tell people you know, what to do and what not to you've do. You've just spent at least five minutes convincing me that I don't want to be Ron Miller. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, why was this movie made? The short answer is the Disney Dark Ages, which we've discussed before at length in our Brave Little Toaster and Oliver and Company episodes. Indeed. It was an odd time in Disney's history that served as a transitional period for the company, in which Disney struggled to retain its relevance with young adults, and therefore was more willing to take greater risks and venture into new avenues of entertainment. And it's during these years Disney put out some of its darkest and most extreme content. Like the teenage years, if you will. It's a trial and error. You know, you're you're trying on new personas and new ventures and seeing what works Mm -hmm. and what doesn't, what you're good at and what you're maybe not so good at. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned teenagers because Disney recognized the commercial success of a bunch of new films that at the time kind of only appealed to teenagers and young adults. Mm -hmm. You didn't have a lot of grown adults going to see American Graffiti, Animal House, and Star Wars. Right. And they certainly weren't taking their young children. 
But these films were massively successful because they appealed to a teenager's sense of latchkey independence. Yeah. And why were there so many teenagers and young adults in the 70s that could drive ticket sales so high that Disney wanted a piece of that action? Because these were the baby boomers, baby. Right. All thanks to- I was going to say, that pesky war. That pesky war and the uh, nuclear family mm-hmm. idealism and suburbs and all mm-hmm. that nonsense. That Refer back we've to- We've also talked about a lot. Uh, yeah. Children's Entertainment, part one and two, our very first opening episodes. Them dark origins. So Disney tried to appeal to teens with multiple film genres. But when it comes to The Watcher itself, these dark ages afforded Disney the opportunity to try- and fail, to capitalize on the uptick in popularity in American 70s horror cinema. We've touched on the timeline of American horror cinema in our History of Halloween series. Mm -hmm. How horror has experienced these surges in popularity depending on where we were as a society, which speaks to a lot of the concept of collective unconscious. The 1950s were one of these times with post-World War II coupled with the Korean War, and the 70s and 80s was another of these times, which is post-Vietnam coupled with the Cold War with Russia. Mm -hmm. And although the 90s was rife with dark themes and scary entertainment for children, the next mainstream surge didn't happen until the 2000s, post-9-11, coupled with the War on Terror. Mm -hmm. But I digress. A lot of just repeating patterns with different you know, people, characters, coloring them. Every two or three decades or so. Mm -hmm. The thing is, much of horror cinema in the 70s catered to teenagers. These are films like When a Stranger Calls. Oh, yeah. Carrie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, Jaws, The Exorcist, and Halloween, Mm -hmm. just to name a few. Some even dealing with those themes of coming of age and the Mm -hmm. horror, like we, we talked about with our summer camp episode. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Halloween, of course, is credited with inventing the American slasher genre, and it inspired all the things we just discussed, speaking of, in our Zeke the Plumber episode. (laughs) From Friday the 13th to Nightmare on Elm Street and everything in the 80s that further inspired Kevin Williamson in the 90s to write the Scream franchise, the I Know What You Did Last Summer franchise, the faculty, Mm -hmm. etc., your favorite show, Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Yeah. I love Kevin Williamson. All of which is a continuation on the type of horror style that teenagers can't get enough of. Mm -hmm. Just take a drink every time I say the word teenager or young adult or family (laughs) friendly coming up. Oh, dear. Get ready. Ironic. Now, heavy themes such as malevolent spirits, missing children, and dark witchcraft were nothing new to Disney at the time. No. But they were typically always explored in cartoon animation. Yep. Where the beautiful female leads could titter like songbirds and the adorable talking animals or fairies or dwarves could provide ample amounts of comic relief and safety Mm -hmm. whenever necessary. Sure. The Watcher has none of that. Instead, it has slasher movie POV shots. Yes. That imply someone, anyone, is stalking a teenage girl and attempting to lure both her and her younger sister into the woods, where another teenage girl, a generation ago, vanished without a trace. Mm -hmm. Pretty dark stuff. Pretty dark. And I will say, the handheld stuff, especially at the very beginning of the film, just about made me sick. Right up top. (laughs) I know. I know. It felt very Blair Witch for a second. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what am I getting myself into? Mm -hmm. It leveled out, but still. They they were clearly setting a tone. Yeah, they were setting a tone and they were following a trend. Mm -hmm. Disney wanted to eat their cake and have it too. They wanted to have a horror film that appealed to teenagers, but they didn't want to actually make the type of horror film that would appeal to teenagers. Yeah. The result 
is a film with an identity crisis. <laughs> a Disney film. Too dark for most families, but not intelligent enough for most horror fans. Yeah. But it's just strange and bizarre and dark enough for us to give it a home here on That's Pretty Dark. That's right. Your home We, we made it a home all these years later. The home for misfits. Yeah. <laughs> and this is nothing if not the a misfit. home for misfit entertainment. <laughs> so now we know that Disney is very interested in appealing to teenagers. Mm -hmm. They've done the Star Wars-esque space travel of the black hole. They're thinking about doing a computer-generated video game film called Tron. Mm -hmm. And now they're very open to attempting horror. But first, they need the perfect idea. They had also just done Escape to Witch Mountain in the like mid-70s, right? That's true. It's a bit of a darker thing. It's not it's horror. Like, it's like a sci-fi tie. It's like a sci-fi adventure. It's like a weird, dark sci-fi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely outside of the bounds of what we would think of as like... Disney. Yeah, no, it's also very weird. A lot of the movies from this time period are experimental, not really. Disney at all, like mm -hmm. in name only. For sure. But you know, again, they just didn't know what they were doing. They were just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Like we all do. Am I right? So they need the perfect idea. Enter Tom Leach, a film and TV producer who had a hand in making a number of Disney films as well as 18 episodes of the magical world of Disney. There you go. He also went on to production manage Tim Burton's Frank and Weenie short film. Aww. Leach had been producing alongside Ron Miller since 1969 on a made-for-TV Disney movie called Secrets of the Pirates Inn. Hmm. And they ended up doing about a dozen or so films together. The thing about Ron Miller is not only was he a very important person at Disney at the time, but he was married to Diane Disney, Walt's daughter. So he was the Disney son-in-law. Yeah. I knew that I knew that name. I read somewhere he was also the head of the studio at that time. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but it makes sense. I think that I've read be. that too. His producer credits include the grand opening of Walt Disney World TV movie, <laughs> mm. uh, Escape to Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain, Freaky Friday, The Ghost of Cypress Swamp, The Rescuers, oh, yeah. Peach Dragon, The Black Hole and Tron, The Fox and the Hound, The Magical World of Disney, The Black Cauldron, The Great Mouse Detective, and so many more. Yeah, see, I knew I knew his name. And he was part of the development of Epcot Center and apparently yes. ran the opening of Disneyland Tokyo. When you're the son-in-law, when you're the Tom Wobscans of it all, then <laughs> yeah. you make it, you yeah. make it. <laughs> He was briefly the president and CEO of Walt Disney Company from 1980 to 84, and then he retired and opened Silverado Vineyard Winery in Napa Valley. He said, I quit. And I wrote hashtag goals. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink wine now. I've made my millions, if not billions, and I'm going to go open a vineyard. Wow. That's one of my dreams. One day, I really want to open a vineyard uh, winery in like an old cemetery, mm. like turn it into a vineyard. That would be very interesting. And have like wine tours wow. and haunted wine tours and stuff. Man, I am I guarantee you've got somebody that's listening that's like, hey, we can make that happen. <laughs> Contact me. A hundred percent. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. That sounds like fun. Make it happen. Just got to find the perfect place somewhere. Mm -hmm. Ron Miller took on the role of producing these live action films that would appeal to teenagers, bringing the usual Disney movie rating of G up to PG. Ooh. When they wanted a space movie the likes of Star Wars, Ron produced The Black Hole. When they wanted a rebellious teenage party movie the likes of Animal House and American Graffiti, Ron produced Midnight Madness. Go watch the trailer for that one. You'll be hey, surprised. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie, but that I we think I've seen We should watch it sometime. It looks wild. <laughs> 
When they wanted to jump on the video game bandwagon, Ron produced Tron. Mm -hmm. And when they wanted to make a horror film, Ron produced The Watcher in the Woods. Yeah. They're just chameleoning their way into whatever was popular, mm-hmm. which doesn't feel like such a Disney thing. Like I think of Disney as the trendsetter, and it's so interesting to have a perspective, yeah. an episode here yeah. where Disney is the trend follower. Yeah, they just they don't know how to stay relevant because mm-hmm. they've they've enjoyed their heyday. Right. For all they knew, it was over. Right. They were like, "What's the future look like? What are we going to do?" They know the Renaissance was around the corner. Yeah, we we know about all that stuff, but they at the, the time. time Did not have that luxury. One day, after many discussions, I'm sure, Tom Leach approaches Ron Miller with a great idea. There's this supernatural mystery novel for teenagers with a great deal of family values at the center of it all. Mm. It talks of ghosts, witches, and gingerbread houses, and it has all the fairy tale moral of the dangers of going for a walk in the woods alone. It's called A Watcher in the Woods, and it's written by a female author named Florence Engel Randall who specializes in this exact kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. We have to adapt it. And if all that isn't enough, Tom Leach sums up the pitch in one now semi-famous sentence. This could be our exorcist. Whoa. Isn't that heavy? Yeah. When I read that line, I was like, we're doing this again? The idea that they were looking for something that could be their exorcist, or if not seeking that out directly, definitely wanting to ride those coattails. Absolutely. Those floating... Vomitous coattails. <laughs> the ectoplasmic The ectoplasmic coattails. coattails. Yep. <laughs> we'll get there eventually between two of us. Uh, hey, it's your birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Happy birthday to you. Mm. You put up with me for another year. Thanks. <laughs> what is space? What is time? We'll get into that next time in part two. That's more of our space time continuum talk is part two. Absolutely. Yeah, that's important. It is for the for the novel. You'd be surprised. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> wow. It, it takes a weird turn. I love the novel. I love it. It's different. Clearly different. So with dollar signs in his eyes, Ron Miller moves forward with the idea. I feel like that's almost the mark of death for an endeavor that should be this creative, an endeavor that has this many Mm. moving pieces, an endeavor that they feel is they're they're drawn to the folklore or the fairy tale. They're drawn to all this stuff, but they approach it, like you said, with dollar signs in their eyes. Mm -hmm. And I I just feel like that's the mark of death for any true creative project. If you're pursuing it simply for chasing those numbers, I agree. It doesn't typically turn out all that well. In this producing duo, you have the duality of man. You have Tom Leach. He had the vision. He had this passion project in his mind, what he wanted this movie to be. Yeah, he did say this could be our exorcist, but mm-hmm. he knew that Ron Miller was looking for the next exorcist, but right. this Disney's exorcist. He was just bringing, he was bringing it to Ron on a silver platter to yes. say, this could be it. He has the excitement. Ron has the whole, I'm going to keep making Disney money. Right. So it's the Roy is the, the Ron is the Roy Disney. Yeah. He's the like, I'm going to carry Disney into the new like millennium. Look, look at the trailer. What did I read earlier? Walt Disney Productions uh, ushers in a new decade of motion picture entertainment. Right. We're ushering in a new time. Mm -hmm. That's Ron Miller. Yeah. So you're, you're right though. It went from this really beautiful concept to a money making cow. Like how much can we make out of this? Right. Yeah. That is the downfall of this movie. Dang. 100% as we'll get to. Oh, man. 
I could see it from a mile away that mm-hmm. that's the, the root of all evil, as they say, mm-hmm. in circles we know all too well. But making a Disney horror film that was scary, but still remained family-friendly enough for Disney, was already going to be a precarious venture. So if they were going to pull this off, they needed the right director. That man was British filmmaker John Hugh. Okay. They'd worked with John before because he'd successfully directed two other pretty dark Disney films produced by Ron Miller back in the 70s, Escape to Witch Mountain uh-huh. and Return from Witch Mountain. And those were also based on a book. So they knew he could handle a strange book adaptation in a family-friendly way. But that seems to be a pretty common MO of your average Disney director. The thing about John is he was probably the only Disney director at that time who'd already enjoyed a successful career directing B-horror films, one or two of which were of Hammer Horror fame. You know Hammer Horror? No. The British horror uh, production company? Mm-mm. They, they had a, a long history of making very famous cult classic horror films. Wow. Known as Hammer Horror. I'm just still hung up on the fact that his name is John Hugh because, of course, any film person is going to immediately think of John Hughes. <laughs> yes. In the 80s. Yeah. So it's yeah. super funny that he's just over here like, no, no, I'm I'm John Hugh. I'm the British guy. <laughs> <laughs> Not John Hughes. Not plural. I'm just one man. I seem like multiple. Another teen movie, you know, guy mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes. His most famous horror is the cult classic The Legend of Hell House, based on the Hell House novel, which I'm pretty sure is just a macabre ripoff of the haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Feels that way to me. But Hugh made a name for himself by directing the second unit work for a British crime drama called The Baron. And then he went on to do more second unit work for a British spy drama called The Avengers, where he ended up directing four episodes, launching his directing career. And from there, he jumped into directing horror, which is what led to the Hell House gig. But even before that, he directed a 1972 adaptation of Treasure Island, written by and starring Orson Welles as Captain Long John Silver, which put him squarely in the family-friendly category of filmmakers, despite his previous sexy horror ventures, and might be why he was ever given a shot at Disney in the first place. Wow. That one gig was his ticket in. Because if you look at the one that I know for sure is a Hammer Horror film, it's called Twins of Evil. And it's pretty much a softcore porno oh. uh, under the guise of an hour and a half long uh, horror film. Well, there you go. Sometimes <laughs> you have priorities mm-hmm. yeah. that aren't related to horror and you still have to make a horror film. Welcome to Hammer Horror. Something is watching. Something unknown. Unseen. The watcher in the woods. Hiding in places where only fear dwells. So with his proven ability to do Disney justice... And the added benefit of his experience with crime, suspense, mystery, and horror, John Hugh was the perfect choice. Not Hughes. Not Hughes. (laughs) This may be why the film adaptation is set in England, not Massachusetts, like the novel, because he's British. Right. And it may also be why they hired a British screenwriter to adapt the book, Mm -hmm. Brian Clemens. It all felt rather British. (laughs) Yes. I think Hugh had a say in hiring Brian, because as far as I could tell, Uh, Brian had never worked with Disney before, but he had worked on some of the same things that John Hugh worked on, like The Avengers, The Baron, etc. And he'd also written a few horror films, namely an adaptation of The Telltale Heart. But here's where things begin to get dicey, which is where they stay for the rest of this production story. The man with the plan is Tom Leach, who had his own vision for the film. 
They hire John Hugh, who meets Leech's vision and takes the reins. Mm -hmm. They hire Brian Clements, who absorbs everything these guys want to do with the movie and sets about writing the script as he understands it, giving it all the flair and finesse he's developed as a writer throughout his career. But when the script was done, Disney, i.e. Ron Miller, probably, Mm -hmm. said it was quoting, too dark and threatening and black. Whoops. For their usual fare. Has he never seen The Black Cauldron? Right. Well, he ended up producing Black Cauldron. I know that's what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) So thus began the rewrites. They hired Rosemary Ann Sisson to lighten things up to a more appropriate Disney level. And she'd written a number of scripts for like quaint British TV dramas and then wrote two episodes of The Wonderful World of Disney. And she went on to write additional dialogue for The Black Cauldron as well as adapting The Wind in the Willows. Wow. First for the TV movie, and then she ended up writing 42 episodes of the subsequent TV series. Yeah. Based on The Wind in the Willows. They were really handpicking these folks for the vibe that they were looking for, which, I mean, Mm -hmm. is the name of the game when you're producing a film, but it seems like they put a lot of thought into that, especially knowing this was going to be such a transitory, like, film for the Mm -hmm. studio. They were doing this, but they were also kind of scrambling. Right. It's like, it's, but they were like, we can put this person in there. They'll be able to, yeah. to, to knock that out. You know, they'll, they were like, we, you know, they, they tried to staff it in such a way that w- it could carry them through. They were plugging people in like a number into an equation. Right. They were doing a paint by number. A paint by numbers production. And as we can see, <laughs> that isn't exactly how films succeed. Last minute script rewrites were done in July of 1979 by Jerry Day, who went uncredited. The third writer who did receive credit, however, was Harry Spaulding. It's unclear at what point he contributed or how much, but to me, he seems to be an American counterpart to this British screenwriting campaign. So my guess is that Ron Miller and Tom Leach trusted him to keep the American dialogue honest. Mm-hmm. He'd written horror, drama, and family-friendly, including The Ghost of Cypress Swamp and six episodes of The Magical World of Disney, and he wrote One Little Indian, wow. a Disney production produced by Tom Leach. Hmm. So like you were saying, because of all the different writers coming at it from different angles, the Huffington Post says, the result is a jumbled mix of horror tropes. Creepy house, creepy woods, the occult, a crusty caretaker of sorts. Yikes. That feels wonderfully out of place in Disney's cinematic record. Couldn't have said it better myself, Huffington <laughs> Post. This is why we pull quotes from better writers than ourselves. <laughs> so with the final rewrites done, just in time in July, principal photography commenced in August 1979. and lasted about 12 weeks on a budget of anywhere from 6 to $7 million, depending on who you ask. And in today's money, that's about 25 to 30 million. Wow. So not a small sum. No. The studio work, the interiors, were filmed at Pinewood Studios in Buckinghamshire, England. And likely all the exteriors were filmed at various locations around Buckinghamshire and Warwickshire. I was quite curious because it felt, like I said, the whole thing did feel European. It felt very British Mm -hmm. and it felt very 70s also. Knowing that it came out in the early 80s, I mean, it makes sense. But to me, it just, it it had that 70s, the 70s hairstyles, right? The 70s wardrobe. Oh, it was so 70s. It was all, like they, they didn't even try to like... A lot of those films that we've watched that are on the the cusp of a new decade. Like Friday the 13th, we watched that one night. We were like, exactly. it feels so 80s. And we're like, it was filmed in the 70s. Though. Right. Usually, I feel like they try to go toward the newer trends. Mm-hmm. But this one, it just felt like 
okay, we're in the pop culture of the 70s. Like, that's where this film lives. Probably because it was coming from 70s horror. Mm -hmm. And the novel as well. And the novel, yeah. So like, but like any any aesthetic choices, I mean, art, uh, hair, makeup, anybody, they're going, your inspiration is 70s horror. Mm -hmm. Look at Amityville. Look at all this stuff. Right. That's what they're handing. Yeah, that's what they're handing off. Yeah. Checklist. It's kind of cool. I mean, it is a time capsule in a way, but it's kind of cool to look at and be like, "Yeah, wow, you can just see what they were no, doing." No, I, I definitely don't hate it, but it I is like it. it. It struck me as super, super seventies watching it in twenty twenty three. Speaking of seventies ha- <laughs> hairstyles, the lead character Jan Curtis was played by Lynn Holly Johnson. Yes, her first film was the lead in Ice Castles, an ice skating movie about a blind figure skater, which I've seen. I watched in school. Really? I was going to ask if you'd seen it because it seemed like the kind of movie you would have you would have seen. That does seem like this kind of movie I would have seen because I loved Ice Princess (laughs) (laughs) with Michelle Trachtenberg. (laughs) This one I didn't remember until uh, until I read it was about a blind figure skater, and I was like, "Oh, I've seen that movie. That's pretty great." She was cast in that film because of her figure skating talent. Uh, but she did so well acting that she was nominated for a Golden Globe. Imagine getting hired for your special skills yeah. and realizing that you're actually a damn good actress. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's fun. So when Diane Lane turned down the role of Jan, Lynn Holly was the next best choice, especially uh, since she was about to be known for her role as BB Doll in the James Bond film For Your Eyes Only. Oh my God. Yep. Didn't put that together. Which also features her talents in ice skating. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, getting hired for those special <laughs> skills. That resume, it's because very important. Well, it's because she'd had a whole career as a figure skater and she even joined the ice capades. Wow. So she was like the real She, she wasn't an actress. She was a figure skater turned actress. She was a figure skater turned actress. Yeah. And she seems to be doing great. That's pretty cool. She's retired from acting, has a family, kids, all that stuff. Good for her. It's awesome. Jan's little sister, Ellie, was played by Kyle Richards. Mm -hmm. Now, it's very possible that Kyle was cast as Ellie because she had made an appearance in Escape to Witch Mountain. Yes. Her older sister, Kim, played the character Tia. But there was a shot of Tia as a younger child. So they got Kyle to play young Tia. Very smart. You may have read this, but do you remember in Halloween when Jamie Lee Curtis's character has to babysit the little girl named Lindsay? Yes. That's Kyle Richards. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No way. And she has reprised her role as adult Lindsay in the newest films that have relaunched the franchise. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. Her other credits include Little House on the Prairie. Yes. uh, CSI, Days of Our Lives, Seventh Heaven, ER, and How I Met Your Father. Wow. So you would have seen her in that too. I would have. Yes. I've been watching How I Met Your Father. Love Hilary Duff. Oh man. Me too. And Kyle Richards. She... She Hillary really Duff played into the. Oh, she has mine too. Has all of ours. I'm married to her and my soul. Did. Mm. Where was I? Uh, <laughs> Kyle Richards. Kyle Richards. I was very honestly impressed with her performance in this film. She was nominated for a few awards for this. Film. I think she should be. She also won the Stinker Award for the like worst child actor performance in a feature no. film. <laughs> See, I don't. I don't agree with that. I have certainly seen. I've seen have, much worse. I have most certainly seen worse child actors. I uh, felt like not even saying like she the performance was outstanding or anything, but she did have that horror child feeling. She I don't know has how to describe the horror it. Child. She has yeah. the horror trope. Mm-hmm. Like she gets it. It mm-hmm. felt like she, as a young child, understood it, which I've don't feel like it's that easy to come by. Well, either she did or she just set the standard. That Haley Joel Osment. 
of it. Maybe she just set the standard for the decades that we know of that we know. children in I horror. Think, yeah, maybe. Maybe so. it was building itself yes, over she time. She built into that narrative, that whole idea. I don't know what how many kids were in horror before this time. Right. Yeah. That'd be an interesting episode to do. Children in horror. Children in horror media. That'd be a fun episode. Linda Blair. Hell yeah. Yeah. You guys want to <laughs> hear that episode? Should we talk about that? I don't know. And I mean, you're right. It's we are looking at this from from our perspective, and we we. I feel like we we remind people pretty often being born in the early 90s ourselves. Mm-hmm. We only have our childhood, you know, to, to look on. back yeah. at. So I think you're you're spot on in saying that yes, not that she embodied what I know of as the children in horror, like children in a horror space, yeah. but that she built it. Could I be. Think that's that's important. Never know. Or helped to build it rather, you know. Mm-hmm. Didn't all rest on her shoulders, but I, I just, I thought it was notable. I like that. All the same. We should have her on as an interview and ask her hey, what she thinks about that. All that would be super cool. <laughs> Their parents, Helen and Paul, were played by Carol Baker and David McCallum. Mm-hmm. Carol Baker is known for having many roles in old Hollywood. She acted in Giant with James Dean, yeah, Rock Hudson, and Elizabeth Taylor. Doesn't get more iconic old Hollywood than that. As well as How the West Was Won with James Stewart, John Wayne, Gregory Peck, and uh, Henry Fonda, and Carolyn Jones, who played the original Morticia Adams. Yeah, every big name mm-hmm. of the time. Carol was also known for a lot of other credits that I didn't really recognize, um, but they included a number of overtly sexualized roles. Uh, go look up Baby Doll. Okay. The trailer for Baby Doll. Baby Doll. Baby Doll. Uh, but the ones that I did know, The Greatest Story Ever Told, mm-hmm. Tales from the Crypt. There you go. Murder, She Wrote, Roswell, David Fincher's The Game, and Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> <laughs> One of these things is not like the others. David McCallum is an award-winning Scottish actor who also had a career in the musical arts having recorded four albums for Capitol Records in the 1960s. Well... His most famous song is The Edge, which I immediately recognized because it was featured in Baby Driver. Yeah. Grand Theft Auto 4. Yeah. And was sampled by Dr. Dre in his song (laughs) The Next Episode. Oh my God. Okay, yeah. You hearing it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah, you know it when you hear it. 100% know when you hear it. I was like, whoa, Dr. Dre. That's funny. Baby Driver. Baby Driver. That was a a fun movie. It's good. I like it a lot. Screw you, Kevin Spacey. (laughs) What we also know about this man, if not him, but his character, is that he has a soft touch late at night. (laughs) Yes. I have a very soft touch late at night. Very inappropriate. Actual line of dialogue from The Watcher in the Woods. I have a very soft touch. I kid you not. As he's playing the piano. The Vulture article described him as a total lech. I, I, yeah, that line really, uh, it's a weird line. We'll say that. They didn't know what to do with him in this movie. He played no Mm -hmm. role. He had a much bigger role in the book. Okay. He was the parent who listened. It was more of like a, we, we have to have him present because he's in the novel. Yes. We have to have his character, but. Yeah, we're going to get into all that stuff. Yeah. I just want to know what the hell that line was about. I don't know which of our, you know, the 15 uh, writers that you've mentioned. Don't I don't know which of them was responsible for that line, but straight Couldn't to jail. You. Straight to jail. Straight to jail. Well, <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with them trying to play up the whole anyone could be the watcher. I, anyone could be the villain here. I understand that and I respect that, but there are different ways to do it. No, I agree. Than that line. I agree. It just made me wholly uncomfortable. W-H-O-L. <laughs> holy. But for having such a small role in the Watcher movie, 
David had one exciting and extensive career beginning in the 1950s. He has too many to list um, all of his notable roles, but he played Judas in The Greatest Story Ever Told, Ilya Kuryakin in 100, 105 episodes of The Man from Uncle. Whoa. Ilya Kirkin? I don't know. Sounds good to me. He also played Donald Mallard in 457 episodes of NCIS. So if you watch that show, that's Dr. Donald Mallard. Yeah, you definitely know who that is. Yeah. That's a lot of episodes. That's that's almost 500 That's so many. I don't know that I've ever heard on this show. That's the most credits for a single thing that we've ever heard on this episode. Genuinely, I don't think maybe uh, like in the 200s is our our record so far. So he just smashed that. (laughs) And not only did he voice various characters in different Batman cartoons, Ben 10, and Wonder Woman, but he was also once on a short list to play the Doctor hmm. on Doctor Who. Who knew? Probably a lot of British people, but not us. Yeah, guaranteed, yeah. So sorry. <laughs> we have quite a few British sorry listeners. Sorry to all of so our listeners in the UK. That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> please write in and correct anything that anything you would like that, to correct. Yeah, I get wrong. Especially about pop culture at the time and like how it felt to be in that time frame because mm. obviously not only were we not in England, not yet conceived on this <laughs> we're planet, not on this mortal plane. Conscious. You're right. We were somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to the remaining cast and all their characters in part two. But we do have one more who deserves our attention today. Okay. To quote the Vulture article once more. The embodiment of all things spooky. The traumatized, sallow, and melancholy next-door crone-slash-property owner, Mrs. Aylwood. Mm -hmm. And that delightfully odd character is played by none other than old Hollywood icon, Betty Davis. Yes. It was very surprising when I realized that Betty Davis was in this movie. I know. I, know. I was like, because I really, I truly tried to go into it as you should as well, listener, if you're going to l- watch along with us. I truly tried to go into it with like a open-minded, mm-hmm. I don't really know what I'm in for, but I'm going to appreciate it. And and then there's Betty Davis. Yeah. Shocked me when I saw her. Right. <laughs> you're like, whoa, this has to be something of substance. Right. I, I was like, immediately the movie has more credibility. Instantly. Instantly. If being a living legend wasn't enough reason to cast Betty as Mrs. Aylwood, it might be because she'd also worked with Ron Miller and John Hugh when she starred in The Return from Witch Mountain. They were like, yeah, let's just get her back. Let's just get her back. Why not just do it again? Right. So before we wrap up, I think it's only right that we give Miss Davis her due. Of course. Lovingly nicknamed the First Lady of Film and the Fourth Warner Brother, Betty Davis was born in 1908 and grew up wanting to live the glamorous life of a dancer until she discovered the stage and realized she'd much rather live the glamorous life of an actress. That's, uh, yeah, I get that. She'd first signed with Universal in 1930, but they were through with her after just one film. Uh, The movie didn't do super well, and Universal claimed it's because she didn't have enough sex appeal. Whoa. So they blamed her. Of course they did, because she's a female, and yeah. yeah. Of course. Yep. And she wear the scapegoats. At the time, um, most actresses got their roles based on sex appeal, um, but Betty became known as an actress who could take on stronger, more complex roles, mm-hmm. quite literally setting the stage for all women wanting to pursue serious acting. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, Betty. And so when Universal said, get out of here, she began staking her claim to Hollywood fame after signing a seven-year deal with Warner Brothers which launched her into critical acclaim, 
and all of the glamour and success that she would come to enjoy throughout her career. Wow. She's known for her roles in Dangerous, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Jezebel, All About Eve, Dark Victory, Now Voyager, and Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Mm. And only like a hundred others. No big deal. Yeah. Her resume is pretty impressive. Pretty Of impressive. course. She's Betty Davis. I wonder what her special skills are. Not given up. <laughs> Probably. She died in 1989 in France from metastasized breast cancer. Uh, and I think she'd be proud to know her last credited role was in a film called Wicked Stepmother as the Wicked Stepmother. Wow. I think she'd like that. What a way to go out. Not a good movie, I don't think, but pretty cool. Like Final role. Yeah, pretty good final role. One anecdote. If you can call it that from her, like signing the contract to moving to Hollywood and all this stuff has to do with when she arrived on the train in Hollywood, mm-hmm. the studio rep who was there to greet her left her on the platform Oh, because he claimed he looked around and didn't see anybody who looked like a movie star. Are you kidding me? And so he just left. What? But if you ask me, what did mm. he could spot young uh, aspiring actors and actresses from a mile away. Yeah. And he just didn't like the way she looked. That and is so he infuriating. Left her and she was only 22 when she moved oh to Hollywood. She was young. Betty, I'm so sorry for what you lived through. Yeah. And what any woman in Hollywood lives through, honestly. But she got her revenge. And in the Watcher movie, we see multiple ages of Mrs. Aylwood. Betty insisted on playing a younger version of herself. So they flew out makeup and hair specialists from L.A. and did screen tests to see if they could take maybe 30, maybe 40 years off of her appearance. Mm-hmm. But Hugh said they got 20 at best. Oh, wow. So he, what a, mm, he sent these people hate women. He don't sent they? all the crew out of the room, sat her down and he said, Betty, I don't think you've made it. And she took a long drag on her cigarette. She said. <laughs> You're goddamn right. Whoa. <laughs> and that's when they cast Georgina Hale as her younger self, oh my God. who said she took the role mostly out of admiration for Betty Davis. Well, I'm glad for that, at least. So they tried. It cost them a lot of money <laughs> to try to make it work. But I think they could have. I think people would have forgiven it. I don't know. Sorry, Betty. Sorry, Betty, but we're glad to have you in this role and, uh, you know, kind of made the movie for a lot of people. Yeah. Most people say that was the best part of the movie was her performance. I might be among them. In the Watcher novel, a great deal of Jan's narration swims around in a stream of consciousness comprised of existential dread and a coming-of-age obsession with mortality, constantly asking herself if birth is nothing more than the beginning of death, while hoping quietly that the end might actually be the beginning. Hate to say we relate. Yeah. (laughs) Likewise, tonight, to conclude our part one, I want to take a page out of the Watcher novel and jump to the end of production to find the beginning of the film. Because it's the failed release of the film and the subsequent rewrites and reshoots that affect the very first thing we see on the screen when we hit play. As I've mentioned before, much of the lore online surrounding this film has to do with the intervention of the studio executive, Ron Miller, Mm -hmm. who made it a habit of stepping in and making changes to things that he felt were too dark or heavy or intense for a Disney film. Mm-hmm. As Sight and Sound puts it, the sense of a production straining against its limitations is palpable. It's curious to observe how Watcher edges toward genuine terror before retreating back into Disney's comfort zone. Yes. And it goes on to mention, quoting, a series of unhappy compromises. Yep. You can definitely 
like it makes a lot of sense to know that they were kind of jumping in with both feet and Ron mm-hmm. kept coming and like pulling them back on yeah. shore mm-hmm. and saying, don't go that far. Yep. You can totally feel that. Mm-hmm. We have examples we're going to talk about next episode based off of an article I've read that might be total horseshit. I don't really know <laughs> because I think the guy who wrote it published it anonymously. I don't really know. But we're going to read it. We're going to investigate. We're going to learn as much as we can to share with you. But the true failure of this film seems to live in the post-production. After principal photography wrapped, when the film was being edited by Jeffrey Foote and the film's visual effects designer Harrison Ellenshaw was working with the effects team back at Walt Disney Studios in Burbank to finalize a good bit of animation that was scripted to occur during the film's climactic final sequence. If you know anything about this film, this might be the bit of information that you're familiar with. But the problem here is that somebody at Disney, probably Ron Miller, with those dollar signs in his eyes, pushed for an early release of the film Hmm. to coincide with Betty Davis's 50-year film anniversary. She'd signed her first film contract with Universal in 1930. Right. Meaning they would need to release the film in 1980. I understand wanting to capitalize on that boom of, you know, content. I mean, it happens today with an algorithm trying to Mm -hmm. post something at the right moment so that more people see it. Like, I get it. But they also released it on like April 17th. So they had a good eight more months or yeah, yeah, eight months to go of the year to make it in 1980. I don't know why they rushed it that much that far. Me neither. Who knows? Maybe it was the day she signed her contract. I have no idea. Gotcha. I couldn't find an actual date. I just know she moved to Hollywood December 23rd. 1930. Wow. That's all I know. So they could have released it during the Halloween season. They could have. They should have. Of 1980. They should have. But this all resulted in unfinished animation and an arguably comical design of the Watcher's appearance in the chapel Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie. Yes. So we're going to get to all that in part two. But suffice it to say for today that when the movie premiered at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City on April 17th, 1980, a mere seven months After principal photography began, and four months after it wrapped, critics were less than impressed. After an overwhelmingly negative response, the film was pulled from the theater ten days later, and instead of just finishing the animation, reshoots were ordered, a new conclusion was written, Mm -hmm. and a new director was hired. They listened to the real-time audiences that first saw the film Mm -hmm. and said, we can't proceed like this. Well, it was also a... Studio executive not wanting to take responsibility Mm. and wanting to blame the writers and the director Mm -hmm. instead of his own bullshit of having to release a a whole year early Mm -hmm. instead of just finishing the movie that they started to make in the first place. A year early and also not committing to the vision. Right. Yes. Changing too much and then rushing the outcome. Mm -hmm. Never works, guys. It never works. It never will. It never has. Just don't do it. Not for films, not for podcast episodes. Not for podcasts. You want to know why we release sometimes on a Saturday or a Sunday or whatever, (laughs) and we're just late and we're like, sorry. It's because- Because we're not going to rush it. What's the point in rushing something if you want it to be right? Exactly. You want it done right or do you want it done fast? Cheap, fast, or right. Pick two. Mm -hmm. But during this process, not only was the very end replaced, but so was the very beginning. There's a pre-credit sequence that I believe was only seen by those few people in that theater for 10 days in 1980. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to see it, but I've tried to find it and I can't find it. As Sight and Sound described it, 
set the mood here. Hmm. A girl sits alone in the woods, playing with her doll. An unseen presence approaches from behind. The girl turns. Her features gather into an expression of terror. She drops her doll and flees. As she runs, her doll is struck by a beam of blue light and bursts into flames. Hmm. Roll credits. That's it? And then the opening credits. Okay. And then the movie starts. So they but they set it up with a more extraterrestrial vibe. Mm-hmm. This is a which, creature, a monster mm-hmm. out to like attack children. Right. Kind of thing. Which I can kind of see, but also not see. It all comes down to the I movie that it. John it's Hugh. It's my favorite. It's the thing. It's the movie that John Hugh was trying to make before so much of it got muddled mm-hmm. and changed. Not necessarily the film Tom Leach wanted to make, though. Not necessarily. You're right. Those are the details we don't necessarily know. I want to see the film Tom Leach wanted. Me too. That's what I want to see. Based off of this book. Because the book is great. It's honestly, it's beautifully written. It's a very, very good book. Wow. If you like that, like, coming of age, pre-YA novel type stuff from like the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, if you like that style, it's good. Yeah. But this excised opening scene, the sequence was replaced by what's now at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. The haunting grainy, dreamlike images of the liminal space that is an English wood. Mm-hmm. Shifting in and out of focus as though you, the viewer, are coming to in the woods, groggy and confused, still half enchanted by some dark, ancient magic, manifesting as the unsettling opening theme of the music box switches in and out between the lullaby and the sudden climbing scream of a horror film cue, letting you, the viewer, know that if you think you're safe here in this dream, in these woods, then the sooner you realize it's actually a nightmare that needs to be woken up from, the better. Damn. And that's where we're going to leave off for tonight, (laughs) y'all. Dang. Well, I think that what we ended up with is closer to what Tom Leach wanted. Maybe. Until the end. <laughs> Could be. It's hard to tell. It's, it's hard, hard to, to know. know. But I'm glad that I now know kind of the minds that went into it and the fact that they all had different perspectives helps me appreciate the war that mm-hmm. was behind this film. And the, It was a push and pull. Mm-hmm. A tug of war, if you will. A tug of war, yes. Mm-hmm. In, in a way that didn't end up serving the film, but I think it could have. I feel like I can see in my mind the potential Mm-hmm. For what maybe Tom Leach had in mind, or like, I like what I see in my head. Sure, I really and I like liked it. the concept overall, and I also agree that yeah. like you needed to have that Ron Miller presence at least in part because you did need to have something that was going to temper it and make it mm. make it marketable, right? For for where they were trying to market it, so you needed yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hindsight. It's twenty twenty, and we're two mm-hmm. kids in our thirties sitting here. <laughs> Decades later, saying what could have been better. You know, we weren't we weren't there, and we didn't experience that pressure. And studio pressure is intense for even today for films and and shows that we watch today. But I think they just had so many good ingredients, and it's a shame that mm-hmm. they all fought so hard for their own agenda, and nobody compromised in ways that served the film. Basically. So many ingredients for a nice, delicious transatlantic soup, a spooky transatlantic. Yeah. Soup. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a lot of thoughts on this one. 
I, I almost, I mourn what it could have been. Right. That's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where I am too. If like, if it hadn't been a Disney movie, if it hadn't been John Hugh, um, I, I'm not, I'm not shaming John Hugh. I think he was a great director. I just think that he was trying to make a seventies B horror film. Mm-hmm. It, it, this, this story deserves more mm-hmm. than that in my mind. Sure. And it, it deserved to have no restraints from, from Ron Miller. It deserved to be its own thing. Like Disney now might do it justice. But even then, I think it would still be too cutesy. Right. It deserves a true, which I say that, I say that, but there was a remake in 2017. Oh, yeah. That we're going to talk about next time. And I haven't seen that one. At the very end of part two. I haven't seen it either. Wow. Directed by Melissa Joan Hart. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. I I, totally knew that. Would I even joke about a thing like that? (laughs) Would I joke? On your birthday. all the listeners are like... Dude, you you didn't know that? <laughs> well, the thing is, most people probably have just seen that movie and don't even realize it was based off a of a movie that from the 70s based right. on a book. Right, right, right. And I think it Man. premiered on Lifetime? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'll have to look. It wasn't a Disney movie. I have I vague think. memories of seeing promo now that you're saying that. Much like the original, I had memories of kind of seeing promo, but I never, I never mm-hmm. saw the film as a kid. So yeah. it's all swirling around in my head. In a very weird way. So next time we're going to get into uh, sort of a compare and contrast sort of book movie deal. More of the plot points, more of the uh, horror. Tell you kind of what was intended with the original source material. Eric and such. All those really delicious details. (laughs) And then everything that the movie took creative license with and all the things that supposedly either were intended or were not intended originally, and how it got so screwed up and muddled, and no one really knew what the movie they were trying to make mm-hmm. before the end of it. Right. So we're going to have a lot of fun talking about all that stuff. Yeah. What a transition into spooky season. Come on. Yeah, God, you got to come and on we are, back. Because... We are currently preparing, yeah. We're preparing for an October of uh, epic proportions, as we usually do. So <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be awesome. We have this one, we have a Kurtz, Cowardly Dog, and then we have our official. Mm-hmm. Official, official. Halloween season. It'll be our second podcast anniversary before too long. Yeah, buddy. Like you said, which is pretty cool. And speaking of that, we should uh, take a second to shout out some of the people that are supporting us. We have new patrons. Yeah, we do. Uh, to shout out, they are Mark E. and Michaela Yu. I love seeing those names. When they pop up on our email and they're like, hey, so-and-so. It is nice. Is, you know, not following you on Patreon. I'm like, thank you. Thank you, Mark and Michaela. We are very grateful. Anytime people see and, and appreciate the content and the mission that we have and what we're trying to do here, mm-hmm. just couldn't appreciate mm-hmm. it anymore than we do. Um, yeah. So if you guys want more content, bonus content, exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash TPD podcast. Mm-hmm. And if you just want to see what we're up to, you can follow us on our social media. Yeah. That's Pretty Dark Podcast on Instagram. That's Pretty Dark on TikTok. Shoot, man. I try to get stuff up about the things that we talk about so that it's all relevant, but... Mm-hmm. It's a labor of love as well. If you want to flex really hard like I am today and wear some That's Pretty Dark merch, yeah. you can go to that'sprettydark.com and go to our merch tab. Yes. And you'll find all of the things we have available on Printify. As you should. And as as a birthday gift to me, listener, Ooh. as a favor, if you were just Ew. itching to, you know, yeah. wish me the happy birthday that uh, happy birthday. all of us existential 90s kids need to be wished, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. feel free to leave a review or some stars on the podcast platform of your choice because that helps us get into more ears and, uh, you know, <laughs> makes us really happy. <laughs> makes us happy. It furthers our agenda of taking over the world. And lab- putting our that's pretty dark label on the moon, our logo. Yeah, that's what we're gonna do. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be great. Well, hope you guys enjoyed this. 
Hope you guys like the uh, the background and the history of all these movies, like like we do. Uh, it's really important. Mm -hmm. We have to have a foundation, or yeah, the film doesn't make sense. Because this one sure as hell would not make any sense <laughs> if you didn't know. This one know barely the makes sense, even when you know it. So it barely makes sense as it is. Buckle in. It's gonna be a good time. Hope you're all having a good back to school season. Yeah. We'll see you again soon. All you parents with your own kids out there. Oh, yeah. Watch this movie with your children. You know what? Mm. Sit down with your kids. <laughs> to be confused, watch <laughs> The Watcher in the Woods. If they're of a PG <laughs> age group. Thanks for listening, guys. We appreciate you. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Keep it spook, spook, spooky and wish Kevin happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark. Written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs>